Let's talk about what we're doing tonight. So we've been in, in a series in King David. We've been going through um, just different parts of King David's life. We haven't hit every aspect of his life. If we were doing that, we'd be here for much longer, longer than just the 10 to 12 week series we've been in. But we've been hitting the highlights, the, the most famous moments for the most part. We've hit a few that you may not be familiar with, but we've hit a lot of them. And, and we've been going through and we've been looking at King David's life and we've been seeing how we can follow Christ more and more truly and how we can seek after Christ based on how David lived his life with the Lord, both the ups and the downs. And we've only got a couple weeks left. Just a, just a couple last, or uh, next Thursday is actually our, our last formal Thursday in King David before we break out into our, our, the things that we have going on for the summer. And, and we have covered a lot of things, right? David and Goliath, we've covered types of Christ, David's anointing, we've talked about worship and the ark coming into Jerusalem. Um, but one of the ones that we haven't covered yet, and one of the most famous ones for sure, would be David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba, and that's what we are covering tonight. So go ahead and turn your Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to be in chapters 11 and 12 tonight. 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And as you turn there, let me tell you what you are about to see. Like I told you that we're doing David and Bathsheba already, but let me just remind you that so far we have seen David as pretty much a constant hero in Scripture. I mean, up until this point, it's pretty much been ups. There's Now, David's had ups and downs emotionally in life. He's had ups and downs in situations in life. But through most of this, he's been the hero. He's been the God-honoring hero that has loved the Lord through thick and thin, that has honored those that did not honor him, that has worshipped God when no one else would, that has fought enemy after enemy and every time has sought the glory of the Lord. That is what we have seen time and time again. But what we're about to see is probably one of the biggest falls in history. It's like in 2 Samuel 1, you might remember this, when, when Regent was, was going through um, David's lament over Jonathan and Saul dying. Like in 2 Samuel 1.19, uh, David says this. He says, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. And he says, how the mighty have fallen. And at that point, he's talking about Jonathan and, and Saul and, and how they have fallen and, and literally died. But this is the type of description that would be used to describe David. At this point, how the mighty have fallen. We're going to see that soon apply to him. And most of you, you're going to be familiar with this story. You're going to be familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, but in case you're not, let me just summarize it very quickly before we go through the whole thing. David commits adultery and has a man killed because of it. That's, that's like the largest chunk of it. But there's so much more to the story that I want to dive in tonight. So, so you see what I'm already calling the message, right? Lessons learned from David and Bathsheba. We're keeping it real simple. We're just going to be talking about some of the things as we read this that we are reminded of or that we learn about the realities of life, the realities of the Christian life, the realities of the fact that God exists and he is the creator, sovereign, all-glorified God, and, and we uh, want to be and are his people and, and what it looks like to, to live life like David did, both the ups and the downs. That's what we're learning tonight. So 
That's what we're going through. We'll hit a couple other things about things that don't matter to the passage and stuff like that. But let's go ahead and just look at the very first verse here. We'll stop at that first verse. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So let's stop right there. I told you I have a couple things for you that I just want to point out and let you know they, they don't matter sometimes as much as, as we think they do. I'm sure we've heard many messages on David and Bathsheba, or we've read it, we're somewhat familiar with it. But one of the things I want to point out to you really right here is that it seems sort of odd. That last statement seems to come out of nowhere, right? But David remained at Jerusalem. And, and a lot of times we come away with the understanding that something is wrong with David, that all the kings have gone out to battle and that, and that David has stayed behind, and so he's doing something wrong. It's some dereliction of duty. That's, and, and, and typically, um, I've heard it preached time and time again that this means that, that things were already not right in David's heart, and that he was not in a good spot, and we just see it get worse and worse. But Scripture doesn't really support that. Scripture doesn't really show that. When, when it talks about the time of the kings going out to battle, that is, that's the springtime, the time when it made sense for kings to go out to battle because that's when food was being harvested in the fields, their soldiers could go out, the rainy season had finished, and their armies could be fed in the fields. They didn't have to carry all this food with them. And so this was literally the time that the kings go out to battle. It's not saying, it's like, it's not the time where, you know, everyone went down and be like, all right, king, King Joba, King Rahab, King David, it's all time for you to go to battle now. Like, it's just saying it's a season, right? It's a season that it happens. But on top of that, we know that this wasn't wrong for David to do because he does it several other times in Scripture in which it's totally fine for him to do it, right? Scripture doesn't call him out on it. We see it 2 Samuel 10, 7, like literally with the exact same people, the Ammonites, David does not go out until much later into the campaign. Like his armies go out before him. And, and we see even like 2117, we see David's people plead with him not to go out. They tell him like, you're gonna snuff out the lamp of Israel if you go out into this battle, if you go out into battle, because they don't want their king out on the front line every single time. They don't want a dead king on their hands. They want their ruler amongst them. And so I say all that because I want to go ahead and establish that What's going on here and what we're about to read is not because David was starting in some negative, dark, sinful place. It's not because David was starting from a place of already having an uphill battle. Like David was still just doing his thing, right? He was, he was still just at the top. He was still loving the Lord, having right action before the Lord. And, and then we see what's about to happen. But we can sort of get why people want to point out something here. We can sort of get why this, this statement matters. And I, I would say that, that part of it, and this is our, our first point tonight, and the thing that I see here is that idleness can lead to sinfulness. Idleness can lead to sinfulness. Now, I'm not talking about like I said, I'm not talking about David being in some negative, terrible spot in his heart, but I am talking about the fact that he had time on his hands. He wasn't at war, and he was in his established city already. He was already king on the throne. He had already brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Like, 
like all of these major conquests, many of them were accomplished. David was no longer hiding in caves, though he'll get back there again. But he was no longer hiding in caves at that point. So David sat idle. Now, I'm also not talking about rest, right? I need you to know the difference. There's a difference between rest and idleness. Like, rest is something commanded by the Lord that we should do. He says to honor the Sabbath as holy and keep it. Like, there is a type of biblical rest that we should all be observing, and that's a rest that sets aside a, a portion of our week and, and causes us to turn our eyes to the Lord and focus on Him and reflect and sit in His presence. Like, there is a biblical, healthy rest. I'm not even talking about that. What I'm saying is that idleness, sitting around, not having work to do, can lead to sinfulness. Now, I'm also not saying that idleness is sinfulness, right? I I didn't marry those two things together. I didn't say that idleness is sinfulness, but it can lead. And And the reason I want to bring this up is because I just want to make it a point for you to identify the moments in your life in which you're idle, the moments in your life in which things sort of come to a point where you've got time on your hands. And I want you to reflect about where that leads you in your spiritual life. I want you to reflect about where that leads you in your life with the Lord. I'll tell you for me, like I, I have Mondays off. Mondays off can be a really great day because all the, all the stores are open and I can go shopping and, and do all those things. Um, Mondays off can also be really bad because my entire family is doing other stuff and I'm just I have the option to just sit there, right? And the world is before me as to what I do with it. And I just want to encourage you, find those moments in your life, in your time, and be on guard. Be on guard because what we're about to see is that in this moment, David was not on guard. He let his guard down and he's about to give in to things that, well, you'll see. All right, let's keep on reading. So 2 Samuel 11, starting verse 2. It happened... Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof, the roof, not a wolf, from the roof, a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, before we go any further, I just want to put some clarifications in there. So the Jewish people had traditions that a woman, after her cycle, would then cleanse herself and be ready for uh, ritual purity again. And and, and the reason this is here is because this is identifying that uh, this baby can be no other than David's, right? Because she was on the rooftop. She was performing the, the ceremony to show that she had just finished her cycle, and so um, her husband's not around, and, and David had just left with her. And so this is to show that it's David's child and that they know that, right? So just want to point that out in case you're sort of wondering what's going on there. Um, so let's get into the main focus of this part of the passage. Here's one thing. I told you I got a few. Here's one thing that I don't want us to focus on tonight because I've heard messages and I've read articles and I've seen where so many people can focus on this sort of one thing, and that is Bathsheba's intentions or her lack of intentions or any part of that story. You know, I've read a lot of articles and and studied a lot in the last week, and I've seen everything running the gamut from Bathsheba was on the roof to try to seduce David to uh, David straight up just raped Bathsheba, right? And everything in between. Now, what I want to say 
is that you can find an article to support whatever argument, right? And there is language in here that, that looks like and, and could very well be that David used his power to, to force himself upon Bathsheba. There's language in here that could show that Bathsheba was a willing participant. What I want to say is, at the end of the day, that doesn't really matter. If, if you look through this passage, Scripture is not concerning itself with these intentions, Scripture is not concerning itself. Like, it doesn't even give much dialogue between David and Bathsheba. We don't know what was really said between them at all. We don't know any of that. Actually, it's just facts. The Bible is listing the facts of what happened and how it happened. Why? Because what happened is what matters. And David's response to it, which we're going to get to, is the most important thing that we learn on this side of the cross. And so I just want to go ahead and set that aside. Like I'm not here to talk about those things. And I'm sure you've heard different things about that, but let's just focus on what the scripture does say. And what the scripture does say is that David committed a sin that was worthy of death. David committed a sin that was worthy of death. Like the Levitical law talks about adultery. That's what he's doing. David is married. She's married. David commits adultery by sleeping with a woman that is not his wife. And Levitical law, the law that David was supposed to uphold and follow as king of Israel, says that the punishment is death. And here's what we learned from it. Our second point for the night is that no one is above sin. No one is above sin. I want, I want you to think about all the implications here of sin in this passage that we, we've read so far, right? Like lust, he, he lusted after Bathsheba, saw that she was beautiful and desired her, right? Adultery, soon to be murder that we're gonna see and, and deceit, trying to cover it up. And we see all this happen from the greatest king that Israel has ever known and will ever know besides Jesus. We see this come from a man who is called the man after God's own heart. Guys, if a man who is described as after God's own heart, a man who was like the pinnacle of like the covenant, remember we talked about the Davidic covenant and the covenant was made with him and, and God's like, the whole world is going to be blessed through you pretty much, right? The covenants of Abraham will be fulfilled in it and, and Moses and, and all of those like, and Jesus will come from you and, and he, his kingdom is going to be established forever and God's making this with David like the man that God made the covenant that brought Jesus. This man was susceptible to sexual sin. And I want to bring it up with you. Because once again, I just want you to realize and be on guard that idleness can lead to sinfulness, but none of us, not a single one of us, is above sin. Not, a, not, not any of us are more than just a step away from throwing our entire life away. I don't know, uh, this is going to be an older illustration, but hey, this is what popped in my mind right now. Does any, is anybody familiar with the TV show House? Does anybody know what that is? Give me a show of hands so I know how many people I'm really talking to. Okay, so there's this TV show called House. I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but uh, I, I, I enjoyed the show as it was on, and it's about this doctor that's uh, addicted to narcotics, and he's like one of the most brilliant doctors in the world, and he pretty much just treats everybody like a jerk all the time, but he's an amazing puzzle solver. But... 
one of his running themes throughout his, the entire show, one of his running themes that introduced in like episode one is that everybody lies. And so he spends the rest of the seasons on the premise that every one of his patients that he's speaking to, there's actually a real story beneath what they're saying. And then as they're talking, he comes in with his mindset, everybody lies. And he looks deeper at what might be going on. And that's how he solves the case. You know, it's all really good TV writing, right? But that has stuck with me because it reminds me that no matter who I'm talking to, no matter who I'm working with, whether it's Pastor Rob, whether it's one of our leaders, whether it's someone in my family, like no matter who I'm working with, I need to approach coming to that person knowing that everybody sins, right? That, that no one is above it. That no one is above me asking how they're doing. No one is above me touching base with them and seeing how they're doing in the word. Like in my C group, right? Nobody is above the conversation of how they're doing in, in whatever struggles they happen to have, right? I'm not saying that everybody sins. Like that's a justification. Like, oh, it's okay. Everyone sins. No, what I'm saying is that everybody sins. So we need to constantly be in community and, and with one another and making sure we're encouraging one another. And we'll get to the rest of that in a minute, but the point is, no one is above it. You're not above it. I'm not above it. Be on guard. Idleness can lead to it, but everybody is at charge there and, and needs to be on guard for it. All right, so let's continue going. This is the longest chunk of passage we're going to go through. I'm going to start here in verse 6. Verse 6, it says, So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going on. So he brings him and he's like, Hey, how's, how's the war going, man? Like, he is, that's definitely not the reason why he wants to talk to Uriah the Hittite, right? He's, David's got a lot of messengers he can talk to about how the war is going. So right there, that's lying, right? That's, that's deceit. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? David is trying to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. David is trying to make it look like it's Uriah's baby. That's why he's sending Uriah down to his house. That's what it means. That, that was the custom that when soldiers came home from war, they ate, they drank, and they were with their family. Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in Booth, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? See, he's mentioning that that is what would typically happen. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this Thing. So while David has sinned and he's continuing to sin, Uriah is the man of honor right now. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, remain here today and also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So David, David just keeps on trying, right? David just keeps on trying to cover up his own sinfulness. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. 
And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Let's just stop there for a minute and, and just, just think about the darkness and deception in David's heart at this moment. Like he's not only trying to cover up his sin by lying and trying to do it multiple times, trying to get this man drunk, but after all of that doesn't work, he not only plots that he's going to get this man killed, right? He's going to murder him. He not only plots that, but he handwrites the letter and makes the man deliver his own death message to his commander. I mean, Uriah is, is traveling back to where the fighting's happening, carrying a command that's going to kill him, and David sets him up for it. Think about the, the place that you have to be to be willing to do that. Verse 18, then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messengers, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? So, you know, clearly Joab is, is worried here that uh, his strategies wouldn't be approved by David. And uh, verse 21, who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone? So he, he knows that David's going to know about some of these things. He's like, right here at the end of verse 21, he says, make sure you tell David after that. If he seems angry, make sure you tell him Uriah died. And that'll make King David happy. And then verse 22, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Job had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant, Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And what does David say? David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. Let's step back for a minute again. Joab knew the type of man King David was. Joab was one of his league commanders. He served under King David. He knew that sending this messenger back to King David, he thought he knew what David's response would be. So much so that he was predicting and telling his servant, hey, go ahead and tell him this, tell him this, like get him ready, like tell him these things and then he'll be happy. Like he knows King David so well that he sets this up. He knows King David well enough to know that normally David would be very mad about these things. Right, that some of the king's men had died, that they got too close to the city wall while they were fighting. Like David is known for these things. And yet, what does David say? David says, yeah. Sometimes a person will die. Sometimes another person will die. The sword does what it wants. What is it showing? It's showing that what David has found himself in, the sin that he is sitting in, is hardening his heart in a way that's impacting so much of him. Right, That he just flippantly wills people who have served him for years to die. That he has become callous and hardened in his sin. And he's not even looking like the man that Joab expected him to be. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. That was an actual formal ritual in which there was a certain amount of time in which they mourned. Right, that's what it means by lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, see, there you go. David sent and brought her to his house. and She became his wife 
and bore him a son. And here's the thing, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. All right, I told you that'd be the longest chunk of, of scripture we're going to go through tonight, but here, here's the gist of it and everything we've been setting up, and that's this, that sin leads to more sin. Sin leads to more sin, right? Whether it's sinful in action, like you can see, like it started with David having lust, and that led to adultery, and then that led to more deceit, and that led to murder, and then that led to a hardening of his heart against the things of the Lord, right? It wasn't just sinfulness in action, it was sinfulness in heart against God, and it piled and piled and piled. And what we should be reminded of is that the same thing can happen in our lives, right? That we need to be on guard against sinfulness. We need to be on guard because none of us are above it. And on top of that, it is a slippery soap that will take us further than we ever thought we would go. It would devour us more than we ever thought we could be. It can consume us in a way that is just irreparable. That's exactly what happens to King David here. I mean, you can see it, right? Like I, I see it in my kids all the time, how like one sin can lead to another, right? Where like sneaking a cookie can then lead to you lying about it, can then lead to you blaming your sister about it, can then lead to you trying to hide it somewhere and it's, you know, gonna get gross and smelly after a while. Like it just keeps on going. But even in the most simplest of actions, you can see how sin can lead to sin. Sin leads to more sin. And the point is this, when we act on our own desires, when we act and go down our own path of what we think is right, if we continue down that path without any intervention from God, this is the kind of place that we will end up because we, left to our own devices, lean this way and go this way. I know I've been pretty down so far. I know I've just been punching you in the throat with sin a little bit, right? But there's hope. There's hope and we're, and we're getting to it. So let's, let's look right here at the, at the beginning of, of chapter 12. So chapter 12, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and he grew it up with him, with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd or prepare for the guests who had come to him but took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. You, can already, you know where this is going, right? You can already start seeing the connections. He had no pity. He had no concern for his sin. He didn't care who was affected by his sin. And because of that, David's like saying, this man, this man should die. It's got David riled up. But then what does Nathan say? Nathan said, verse seven, Nathan said to David, you are that man. You are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives in your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. It's heavy, it's a lot, 
But the hope and the good reminder is that we, as God's people, we need God's people and we need God's word. We need God's people and we need God's word. Nathan was speaking on behalf of God. Nathan was one of God's prophets. Prophets, back in that time, they were the word of the Lord to the people of Israel. Prophets that came to the king, they spoke to the king, and it was God, on behalf of God, speaking to the king. So when Nathan comes and he's speaking to David, that is the word of God speaking to David. And on top of that, Nathan is one of God's people, and he belongs to Israel. He's one of the covenant people of God. And and what we see here is that David is sitting in his sin. He's sitting in his hardness of heart. He's sitting in this stage of life that he never saw himself in, at least not to this point and to this extent. And the word of God comes through the people of God. And what happens? Why have you despised the word of the Lord? In verse 9, you struck down your eye of the Hittite. Verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you despise me and taken the wife of the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. A lot of stuff is gonna happen, right? He says like, I'm going to cause your neighbor to lie with all your wives in the sight of the sun. This actually happens. Like David's son actually sleeps with his wives in front of all of Israel. That happens just a few chapters later. Like, this consequence is there. Verse 12, For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, and here is the key, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Guys, the reason we need God's people and God's word is this point right here is that repentance is everything. Repentance is everything. I told you David was sitting in this this stage of life, right, where he was um, just in the hardness of heart and in his sin and a person of God, the word of God came to him. And what did David do? What was the key? I mean, in one breath, Nathan is saying that God is going to destroy David. And then all of a sudden, what does he say there in in verse 12? Verse 13, David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin and you you shall not die. What's the difference there? Does God change his mind? Does God just decide a different thing? Oh, you're right. No, good. No. The Lord was waiting upon the repentance of David. And this makes all the difference because David went from a man that was going to be condemned to death, a man that was going to be condemned to have the sword against him, a man who's going to be destroyed by the Lord, to a man that was still restored to his covenant, a man who remained king, a man who Jesus still came through his lineage, right? A man who was still blessed by the Lord and died at the end of his days, loving and cherishing and worshiping the Lord. And what was the key difference here? It was his repentance. I have sinned against 
the Lord, his confession of what he had done, his admittance to what he had done. And if you were to continue reading this, you're going to see that it was his love for the Lord and turning away from that sinfulness and turning back to the Lord that changed everything. And the reason why this is hopeful, guys, the reason why this matters is because all these things like idleness and, and the sin and sin leading to more sin, all of it can be changed when we repent when we humble ourselves, when we give ourselves over to the Lord, when we listen to his word, when we put ourselves around God's people, right? when we are here listening to God's people, when we're in C group and we're meeting together every week and we're hearing one another and we're letting them encourage us, when we're having those late night conversations with another believer in Christ and we're letting them encourage us with the word, like it's these things that stir our hearts to repentance, that break the hardness of it and that change everything. So at the end of the day, this is a very hopeful message, and it's one that we're reminded of in King David. The last point I had is that although the debt is paid, consequences remain. I want to, I say the word encourage. For some of you, this is going to sound like a challenge, but I want to encourage you to know that although our sin is forgiven, although we come before the Lord and, and we will be with him in eternal life for those that repent, confess him as Lord and Savior, are called a child of God, there are still some consequences. You know what happens right after this? David's son dies because of what happened here. I already told you, another one of David's sons sleeps with all of his wives in front of all of Israel, right? Like that happens because of what David did here. Like there's unrest in his family and, and battles between brothers because of what David did right here. Like there are still consequences to that sin that occurred throughout history, but David's debt was paid by his repentance and trust in who God was and his promise given by God. Sort of a different message for us. Sort of a... A heavy one, a light one, I don't know. I don't know how to, how to mesh this. But when I walk away from this, I think, man, it feels so heavy to say it to you guys. But I know that this is what we need to hear tonight. I know that we need to hear that these things are real and that there's hope for them found in God's word, found in Christ, of course, God's word revealing it, God's people showing it to us. And so all that to say is we head into the summer as we are sort of ending our formal time here for a few weeks and then getting back into it in June, as C groups are taking a little bit of break and then probably coming back together, like if you are at a moment right now where the summer's coming and you're like, man, this school year, I really, I strayed, I got far away, I need to get back, there is hope. There is hope and peace to be found in the word of God and the people of God showing you Christ, revealing him to you. So if that's you, find a leader with a name tag on. Come talk to me afterwards. I'm gonna be up here right after this message. Come talk to me and I'd love to just help you get connected and help you be in the word of God and, and help you follow hard after Christ, right? Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we had an opportunity to be in it. Lord, what a huge chunk of scripture we covered tonight. And I know, Lord, there was so much to talk about so much I couldn't cover, so much I did cover, I spent so much time on, Lord, but um, I pray that it's all for your glory. I pray that the things that I said, they're not of you, but just fall dead right now. And Lord, the things that are eternal, the things that are based on your eternal truth, Lord, would, would ring and have eternal impact in our hearts and minds and lives. Lord, thank you so much for um, this group. 
Thank you for the time of worship, both in singing praise and hearing your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help us be reminded and be on guard. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.